Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Candace Millard at Hennepin County Library, Southdale. Candace Millard is a New York Times bestselling historian, widely acclaimed for producing crisp, concise, and revealing history, according to the Washington Post. She began her distinguished career as a writer and editor for National Geographic before turning her attention to book-length projects. Millard's 2005 debut, The River of Doubt, Theodore Roosevelt's Darkest Journey, explored a little-known chapter in the life of our 26th president. Her 2011 follow-up, Destiny of the Republic, A Tale of Madness, Medicine, and the Murder of a President, chronicled the life and assassination of President James Garfield. Both charted extremely well and garnered Millard numerous honors. Millard's newest title, debuted in September, focuses on the larger-than-life character of Winston Churchill, prior to his time as Prime Minister. Hero of the Empire recounts the story of Churchill's capture and harrowing escape from a POW camp in colonial South Africa during the Boer Wars. Millard makes use of slides in this discussion. If you're interested, you can find these online at clubbook.org podcast. And now, Candace Millard. Thank you for that introduction, and thank you all for, for coming tonight. It's an honor to be here, and um, I'm really looking forward to the evening and to speaking with all of you. When most of us think of Winston Churchill, we think of this man. <laughs> he is virtually a synonym for great leadership. He is a master politician, a savior of his country during World War II, winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature, and one of the most famous human beings in history. But the problem with trying to understand a leader at the height of his career is that we often end up talking about the results of that person's character, not the forces that created it. What I am trying to understand is where that man came from. What gave him the courage the insight, and the will to become such a towering figure. So tonight, I'm going to talk about this man. He's 24 years old. He has just left the military, the only job he's ever had, the only job for which he's been trained. He has no money. He's already tried to run for office, but lost. 
He is like so many other children of privilege, then and now, who amount to nothing. So how do we connect this young man to the legend he later became? What made the Winston Churchill we all know? How did he become one of the most powerful and effective leaders that mankind has ever produced? I believe that an important part of the answer lies in an exceptional series of events, which I describe in this book. It is a story of what happened to young Winston when he went to the Boer War in South Africa in 1899. Churchill didn't plan this story, and he couldn't have predicted it. But in every sense, he prepared for it, he understood its significance, he seized control of it, he risked everything to succeed in it, and he turned that opportunity into a life-changing a life moment that was directly responsible for his later path to power. There is a saying that luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity, and that is exactly what happened here. Churchill was only in Africa for a matter of months, but what happened there put the spark to the combustible mixture of intelligence, ambition, courage, and resourcefulness that defined him from his earliest years. It transformed the young man you see here into a world-famous hero, setting him firmly on the path to greatness. And in doing so, it also transformed the world we live in today. Before I talk about the Boer War and the action that takes place in this book, I'd like to introduce you to young Churchill. He comes from a famous family. He's a direct descendant of the first Duke of Marlborough, John Churchill, who is considered to be one of Britain's greatest generals. His father, Lord Randolph Churchill, the third son of the seventh Duke, was Chancellor of the Exchequer and leader of the House of Commons. And he was born here at Blenheim Palace the estate that Queen Anne gave to John Churchill after he won the Battle of Blenheim in 1704. Churchill, however, would never inherit either the title or the palace. He had no income, and his father, who had died an early, very public, very tragic death when Churchill was only 20 years old, had left him very little money. The good news was that he was naturally brilliant, and he was an exceptional writer, and he knew it. In fact, he had already written three books, including his first and only novel, Savrola, and he quickly discovered that he could make a living as a journalist, covering every war he encountered. But being a journalist was never going to be enough for Winston Churchill. He was fascinated with power and consumed by dreams of glory. He had trained to be a soldier and he loved war. In fact, even though he was only 24 years old, he had already been involved in three different wars on three different continents. And he was willing to take any risk to be noticed. He had nearly been killed many times, bullets whistling by his head, once killing the horse that had been standing right next to him, 
another time severing the jaunty feather that had been on top of his hat. He had killed men himself, once coming so close to his victim that his pistol struck the man as Churchill galloped by. And he had seen his friends not just killed, but mutilated, sliced to ribbons by their enemies. But even with all he had seen and experienced, Churchill continued to seek out the most brutal battles the British Empire had to offer. He was the first to sign up and the first to show off however he could. He even, to the astonishment and horror of the men around him, rode a white pony during a battle in British India, just to be noticed. He said, given an audience, there is no act too daring or too noble. Without the gallery, things are different. <laughs> Churchill was impatient to succeed and excel, to make his mark on the world. But no matter what he did, he couldn't get a foothold. The military was too slow for him, so he quit. He ran for his first seat in Parliament in the summer of 1899, but was rejected by voters. So frustrated and burning with ambition, Churchill feverishly looked for his next opportunity, knowing that it was his destiny to lead. As he told his mother, he had faith in his star. Just four months later, war broke out in southern Africa. To the British, this was just another colonial war, one that they expected to be over with in a matter of months, certainly by Christmas. Unfortunately, they had forgotten who they were fighting. The Boers had been living in South Africa for centuries, and in that time they had transformed from rogue splinter groups of largely Dutch, Huguenot, and German immigrants into an entirely new ethnic group, neither European nor African, but Boer. They had even developed their own language, Afrikaans, which mixes Dutch with everything from French and Portuguese to Khoikhoi. They were highly religious, unabashedly racist, and stubbornly independent. And most of all, they just wanted to be left alone. In an attempt to get away from the British in 1835, just two years after the British Empire had abolished slavery, they had moved hundreds of miles from the Cape into the African interior in what they called the Great Trek. And at that time, they established three republics of their own. Their independence, however, had lasted only as long as their poverty. In the mid-1800s, diamonds and then gold were discovered in the Transvaal, one of the Boer republics, transforming the region from one of the poorest in the world to one of the wealthiest. Paul Kruger, who would become president of the Transvaal, predicted that this gold will cause our country to be soaked in blood. And he was right. By 1877, Britain had annexed the Transvaal, a move that quickly led to the first Boer War in 1880. Nearly 20 years later, in the fall of 1899, little had changed. The British still wanted the Boers' land, and the Boers still insisted on their independence. The British Empire began amassing troops at the Transvaal borders, and the atmosphere, Churchill wrote, gradually but steadily became tense, charged with electricity, laden with the presage of storm. 
Finally, the Boers issued an ultimatum, stand down or prepare for war. The British, thrilled to have an excuse to go to war, allowed the deadline for the ultimatum to pass with little more than a sneer. Just three days after the war began, Winston Churchill, seeing his opportunity, was on a ship to South Africa, hired to cover the war as a correspondent. Churchill had never really followed the rules. His mother, the beautiful American socialite, born Jenny Jerome, had used her influence time and again to help her son win military appointments. This is a pushing age, Churchill had explained to her, and we must push with the best. Since leaving Sandhurst, the Royal Military Academy, he had used every connection she had and every skill he had to promote himself. Now he was the highest paid correspondent England had ever had, and he was eager for the adventure that lay ahead. In South Africa, however, the situation had quickly begun to deteriorate. The British had seriously underestimated the Boers. Not only were they extraordinary marksmen with better weapons than the British, but they knew every nook and cranny of the South African felt and could disappear without a trace, making them an invisible and very dangerous enemy. The British, in stark contrast, had only recently begun dragging their military into the modern world. Sir Redvers Buller, who is the Commander-in-Chief of Her Majesty's Army in South Africa, had been nicknamed the Steamroller because the British believed that he would make quick work of the Boers. His men, however, had only very reluctantly traded in their dashing red coats for khakis, which they bitterly complained made them look like bus drivers and they continued to fight in perfect, precise lines, spreading themselves across the flat South African veldt like a picture in a storybook served up for slaughter. By the time Churchill reached South Africa, the British had already been humiliated by the Boers, losing the first battles and leaving the British stunned and scrambling to adjust to this new kind of warfare. As soon as Churchill arrived, with his valet, of course, as well as a nice selection of wine, a light port, a French vermouth, and 18 bottles of 10-year-old Scotch whiskey, he went as far and as fast as he could toward the front, which was now Ladysmith. By the time he arrived, however, the Boers had completely cut off Ladysmith. No one could get in or out. I was too late, Churchill wrote dismally. The door was shut. So he was forced to make camp just 40 miles south of Ladysmith in a little town called Escort. Just nine days later, as a heavy rain fell on the morning of November 15th, Churchill climbed aboard the British Army's armored train. His old friend from his days in the military, Almer Halden, had been ordered to take the train out for reconnaissance. Both men knew that it was a foolish, potentially disastrous decision. Not only was the train an easy target on the best of days, but the Boers had been spotted just outside of escort only the day before. Halden had no choice but to go. Churchill, on the other hand, did. But frustrated, restless, and he would later admit eager for trouble, 
he did not hesitate for a moment when Holden invited him to go along. Before the sun came up that morning, Churchill had climbed into the first train car, an open truck from which he would have the best vantage. Behind him, stretching down the tracks, were another armored car filled with men in their khaki uniforms and peaked helmets, the engine with its wide-mouthed black funnel and narrow tender, two more armored cars, and finally an ordinary low-sided car that held some tools and a few plate layers. As the train cut across the felt, the Boers were silently and invisibly watching. Led by a respected and daring young general named Louis Bota, who would later become the first prime minister of South Africa. Bota knew not only where the train was going, he knew they would have to come back on the same tracks. As soon as the train passed them, he ordered his men to move to the bottom of a hill and began piling rocks on the tracks. When the train on its way back to escort appeared at the top of that hill, the Boers opened fire, chasing it down the steep slope until it crashed into the stones, catapulting the first two cars off the tracks, killing several men, horribly wounding others, and trapping them all in a hailstorm of shells and bullets. Although he was only a journalist, one of the few civilians on the train, and again just 24 years old, Winston Churchill immediately took charge of the defense, shouting orders as he ran back and forth from the engine to the last truck, organizing the men in a desperate attempt to free the train. In the end, he succeeded, and every man who made it out alive credited Churchill's resourcefulness and bravery for saving their lives. Unfortunately, Churchill wasn't there to accept their gratitude or hear their praise. He had been captured, and he was taken to Pretoria as a prisoner of war. For Churchill, captivity was unbearable, and he would never forget how it felt. Many years later, he wrote, you feel a sense of constant humiliation in being confined to a narrow space, fenced in by railings and wire, watched by armed men. I certainly hated every minute of my captivity more than I have ever hated any other period in my whole life. From the moment he became a prisoner, Churchill resolved to escape. Finally, with two other men, he had a plan. A six-and-a-half-foot-tall iron paling surrounded their prison, the Stotsmudel School, which was constantly patrolled by armed guards. When the electric lights came on at night, however, one corner of the yard remained dark. If one of the guards turned his back at just the right moment, they could make their move. After much discussion and careful planning, they chose their night. But when the time came, Churchill's co-conspirators found themselves trapped inside, in the glare of the lights and the eyes of the guards. Churchill, who had already scaled the fence, suddenly realized that he was alone, facing the prospect of crossing nearly 300 miles of enemy territory, with no map, no compass, no food, no weapon, no ability to speak the language, 
and with the Boers who were humiliated and enraged in hot pursuit. What Churchill did have was an absolute faith in his destiny and a clear-eyed understanding that this was the chance he had been waiting for. The story of Churchill's escape is an epic adventure by any standard. I won't tell you how he survived it. You'll have to read the book. <laughs> but I will say that by the time it was over, Churchill was not only a free man, he rode back to Pretoria as part of a British regiment, took over the prison, released the men who had been his fellow prisoners, captured the jailers, and watched as the Boer flag was torn down and the Union Jack hoisted in its place. But more important than the story itself is what it meant to Churchill as a person, as a leader, and as an architect of the world we now live in. After he returned home from South Africa, he was what he had always dreamed of being, a hero of the empire. A famous man now, Churchill ran for parliament again, and this time he won. His life and British politics would never be the same. If Churchill had previously dreamed about the power of his will and his destiny, now he had proof. He was unstoppable. He had not only been part of a great adventure, he had done it alone. He would approach life and politics with an unshakable faith in his own abilities that would not only define his leadership, but provide a foundation of courage and confidence that inspired entire nations. Churchill would also carry the humbling lessons of this experience throughout his life. He understood better than almost any other major leader the enormous cost and tragedy of war. He was also extremely compassionate about the plight of prisoners and determined to reach out the hand of friendship to those who had so lately been his enemies. As high as Churchill rose in the political stratosphere, he would never forget his capture, his imprisonment, or his escape from the Boers. As he himself would write, this misfortune, could I have foreseen the future, was to lay the foundation for my later life. Those foundations in turn would help to support and shape much of the world we know today. Of course, Churchill didn't know that at the time, but I don't think it would have come as a surprise. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Candace Millard and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member asking about what kind of travel Millard conducted to research for this book. Um, so that was one of the best parts of working on this book. Um, so I obviously spent a lot of time in England. The, um, most of Churchill's papers at the Churchill Archives in Cambridge. Um, I went to Blenheim Palace. I went to the National Army Museum, the archives at Kew, a lot of different archives there. And then I went to South Africa and I spent several weeks there. Um, a lot, you know, here, I think, in the United States, the Boer War has largely been forgotten. 
But if you go to South Africa, it's everywhere. There are markers on the battlefields or libraries or museums. But specific to this story, I went to where he was captured. I went to the building um, where he was kept as a POW in Pretoria. It, was a, it had been a teacher's college before the war, and it's now a public library. And so it was very strange for me that people sort of you know, casually browsing for books. Well, you know, there's this, there's a map on the wall that this is, this is the officer's prison. And so these men were highly trained cartographers. And they drew a map of South Africa on the wall and charted the course of the war. And it's still there. Mm -hmm. And in the, in the room where um, Churchill was kept, there's a trap door in the floor that I stood in. And I could see at one point they had considered tunneling their way out and they quickly hit water and it's just very strange feeling to be standing in that trap door. I went to where he hid for three days in a coal mine shaft with white rats um, and I went into Mozambique which was then Portuguese East Africa where he came out to freedom and I went to the British consulate um, where, he, where he finally got help and it's the same building today. They have a plaque on the wall dedicating the gardens, Churchill's garden. So there's still an extraordinary amount of information. And also, you know, one of the things that I look for before I commit to um, any idea to write a book about is that there be just an avalanche of primary source materials, so much that I'm desperate that I think I'll never get through it. And um, that was absolutely the case here between letters, diaries, firsthand accounts, newspaper accounts. There was a, a lot to work with. This question asker inquires if it was the young, impatient Winston Churchill his future wife Clementine met and fell in love with. Yes, this is a Churchill, but I will say that there is a love story in this book as well. His, the first love of Churchill's life, a young woman named Pamela Plowden. And he met her in India um, before, before the war and fell in love with her. And he actually, he wanted to marry her. Um, but, and I love this, her, her father wouldn't let her marry him because he didn't think that Churchill would amount to anything. <laughs> you gotta love. But they um, remained friends throughout their lives. And in fact, um, she kept all of his letters to her. And there are 65 years of letters between the two of them. Yeah, it's really extraordinary. Our next question is what was behind Millard's inspiration to write this story? Well, um, so I first heard the story, just the basic outlines of it, about 25 years ago. My husband um, had been a journalist for years with the New York Times, and he actually started his career in South Africa covering the ANC um, in the early 80s when not many people were covering them. And when I first met him about 25 years ago, he told me, he said, did you know that Winston Churchill was a POW and escaped in South Africa? And I was just stunned, you know, that I couldn't believe I hadn't heard that story, and it just stayed with me. And after I turned in the manuscript for my second book, I was going to lunch with my husband, and he said, well, do you have any ideas for what you'd like to write about next? And I said, you know, I was thinking about Winston Churchill in South Africa, and he was like, yes, yes. <laughs> and, um, and so I just became hooked. But what, what I love about this, not just the fact that it's this largely forgotten story, and it's this incredible story of adventure and survival, and it's Winston Churchill. But I think that um, it's very, very revealing about who he was as a person. And that's largely what I look for in, um, in, the, in the books that I write. You know, I think that often when we look back into the past, 
what catches our eye, what we remember are the large public moments of triumph or infamy. Um, but what interests me are the private moments of personal struggle when somebody is desperate or scared or sick or grieving, because I think that's when you really see them for who they are, when their true nature is revealed. And that's absolutely been the case with each of the books I've written, and certainly here, you know, because he's so young, you know, and you look at these pictures of him, the picture on the cover of the book, and you, you wouldn't recognize him as Winston Churchill. But inside, he is fully formed. He ar already knows. I mean, I, I don't know what you guys were like at 23, 24. <laughs> I had no idea who I was, who I wanted to be, how I would get there. And he had it all mapped out. He knew that he was destined for greatness. And he, but he didn't just sit around kind of waiting it for, for it to happen. He made it happen. He threw himself into these incredibly dangerous situations again and again and again. And he worked unbelievably hard to make it happen. And um, at one point when he's on the South African felt by himself, he knows that the Boers are looking for him. He knows if they catch him, there's a very <coughs> real risk that they will kill him. And he keeps swinging wildly between absolute confidence and incredible fear and desperation. And he wasn't a religious man, but at one point he stops and he prays for guidance. And he's just, and you just kind of see him for who he will later become in all of this for his, his determination, his agility, his, his grit, his, his brilliance, his audacity. It, it's all there, full display in, in South Africa. Another audience member notes that Churchill faced depression throughout much of his life. Did Millard see evidence of this when researching his early years? Well, I think that, you know, he, he reminded me a lot of Theodore Roosevelt. And as you know, Theodore Roosevelt also, <laughs> were you going to talk about that? Uh, and I, my first book was about Theodore Roosevelt. And Theodore Roosevelt also struggled with depression. He called his black horse. Um, and um, and they, were, they were so much alike. And what they did, both of them, it seemed to me, is they threw themselves into these dangerous, difficult, physical challenges that sort of tested their strength and their ability and, and helped them forget and helped them sort of outrace um, this depression. And, um, and so I think that at this point in his life, he was still absolutely full out outracing it. And, um, but it's interesting, you know, because I, I ever, while I was writing this book, again and again, I kept thinking, he reminds me so much of Theodore Roosevelt, you know, the arrogance, the ambition, the, you know, the cra driving everybody crazy ar around him. And, you know, they met. They, after he um, finished with the war, after he escaped, and after he fought, he wrote a book, and he came to the United States on a book tour. And he met Theodore Roosevelt, and they didn't like each other. <laughs> and I think it's because they were too much alike, actually. I think that's the situation. This audience member mentions that there's already been a lot of material published on Winston Churchill. Does Millard feel like she provided something new? I think that what I bring to this story comes largely from my background at uh, National Geographic. I worked at National Geographic as a writer and editor for a long time. And, um, and what it taught me was that this world is enormous and there are thousands of fascinating stories. Um, but the key is to study them closely and to research them in depth and to really understand them. And so that's what I tried to do. And I absolutely did tell stories in this book that haven't been told simply because I looked at it in a different light. 
um, I was really interested in the, the etymology of a lot of new words like sniper or khaki that were being used at that time. Um, the history of the South African railroad system. Um, the, what it was like, what was it like for him when he hid in this coal mine shaft? What, is it, what did it look like? What did it sound like? What did it smell like? All of those things I found books and materials and um, documents and experts who helped me. But most importantly, and it was really important to me to do this, is I tried to the extent that I could to tell the story from the point of view of Native Africans. Um, and I made this, make this point again and again, which unfortunately is, is not that often made, is that this was a white man's war on land that belonged to neither of them. I mean, this is Africa. People have been living there not for hundreds or thousands of years, but for millions of years. And, um, and what I did, and I, this was so fascinating to me, I found a man named Solomon Pleike. And Solomon Pleike is one of these rare characters in history, figures in history that you find, who are so absolutely brilliant and so brave. And he somehow, on his own, had taught himself, he was fluent in eight different European languages, as well as the many different African languages he taught, he, he spoke. And what he did, he served as an interpreter for Native Africans who would be accused of a crime and would be pulled into court and have no idea what they were being accused of because it would, took place in Afrikaans or in English and he would interpret for them. He started newspapers in both his native language and in English. And he watched this war going on around him. And he wrote, he kept a diary, which is absolutely fascinating. And I, and I talk about that in the book, and I have a picture of him in the book. So that's what I, that's what I bring largely to this, to this story. This question is whether Winston Churchill ever met Gandhi while in South Africa. They didn't, but they didn't meet, but they were on the same battlefields, which is one of these incredible intersection of history. So Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was there. He was actually serving as a doctor in the war and later wrote one of the definitive histories of the war. Um, Rudyard Kipling was there, also a journalist. And Gandhi, Gandhi was there. So Gandhi, a lot of people forget, but he spent many, I think it was something like 18 years in South Africa, and that's where he developed his ideas of nonviolent resistance. And he, when the war broke out, he felt that, you know, he and other Indians living in South Africa needed to help the British war effort to prove to them that they were British citizens and they deserved rights. And so, and he, but he didn't want to fight, and so he formed this group of stretcher bearers. And he was a stretcher bearer on the same battlefields that Churchill then later fought on. And obviously, they didn't have a love affair either. <laughs> and Churchill said a lot of uh, very unfortunate things about Gandhi, and they, they fought for a long time. Or Churchill fought Gandhi. I don't think Gandhi necessarily fought back. <laughs> An audience member remarks that Millard brought in a lot of science and technology into previous books. What kind of similar elements did Millard try to incorporate into Hero of the Empire? Like I said, I. Um, it, it was really interesting to me to understand the, um, the railroad system, for, for one thing. As I said, it was you know, integral to what was going on in the war. It was, it was Churchill's path to freedom, but he followed the railroad system. He went on and off of it. They, and he didn't know, he, kept, he thought he could keep sort of 
jumping on in trains and hiding at night and then jumping off and hiding somewhere in the land. But <coughs> what he didn't know is they had actually shut down the train system at night. It wouldn't run at night after, after he escaped. Um, but what, what really interested me was the evolution of modern warfare. The Boer War is really the beginning of modern warfare. And you have uh, the first con concentration camps. So near the end of the war, so again, the, the British think this is going to last a couple of months. It ends up lasting almost three years. And so they have Bullers pulled out because he's losing. They send in Roberts. He does what he can, but then they end up sending in Kitchener, as we all know, had a long and contentious relationship with Churchill as well. And Kitchener says, enough. I'm going to end it now, because they had lost so much in treasure and in lives by that point. So they, um, they resort to very desperate and horrible measures, scorched earth policies, farm burning, and these, they set up concentration camps. And their, their goal was not to kill, this isn't like what you think of the, the Nazis, to, to kill the people they've inca incarcerated, but they do kill them by neglect. So they, these women and children living on these farms, their men are out fighting, the Boers are fighting, and they are a source of refuge to the Boer fighters, the source of food and shelter. And so the British come and round them all up and burn their farms and put them in these concentration camps, um, which have horrible, horrible conditions. They're not, they don't have enough food. The, the situation hygienically is a disaster. There's no medical care. And many, many of them die. And Native Africans who have been forced to fight in the war are also put in concentration camps, and even more of them die in concentration camps. Um, at some of the first guerrilla fighting, they call it the khaki wars because they were no longer wearing their red coats. And so everything changes and they're scrambling to sort of figure it out and figure out how to win this war. And so the British army going into the Boer War is completely different than the British army coming out of it and it prepares them for World War I. This next question is about Churchill's attitude towards the enemies he faced during and after the war. I do think that's something that's, um, that's remarkable about Churchill and something that's admirable uh, about him is that, you know, during war, no one fought harder than he did. But after war, no one was more magnanimous and no one was more insistent on reaching out the hand of friendship in, to the enemies and helping them rebuild. And that was true not only after World War I and World War II, but but during the Boer War, in fact, he got in a lot of trouble for right after he escaped, and he's a big hero. He, he writes in the Morning Post, his paper, about how it's important that when the war is finally over that we support South Africans and help them to rebuild and, and, and keep our promises. You know, the, the British Empire had promised Native Africans that things would go a lot better quickly after the war, and obviously, as we know, it took a long, long time before we got uh, to Nelson Mandela. But also, um, Churchill spoke publicly about his admiration for Boer fighters, about how hard they fought and how skilled they were, which is also not a popular move. Our next question is what Candace Millard plans to write about next. <laughs> I, have, I have thought about it, and I have um, three contenders, sort of three possibilities, but I just haven't had time to do the research that I need to do um, in order to know if it's going to work. You know, I, 
<laughs> I'm not telling. <laughs> but um, but I you know I'm I the book came out on the 20th of September and I'm traveling through the end of November and I'm really looking forward to December where I can go back in my office and close the door and um, and do some research because it you know there are a lot of great stories out there there really are but like I was saying earlier unless you have just an avalanche of primary source material you can't can't make them work especially for narrative nonfiction in order to sort of try to make it a page turner to try to to have dialogue you know to try to have all those details that you hope make a story come alive because I know that as a reader I love to just be immersed in a story where I'm just unaware of anything else going on around me and in order to do that to make that happen you just have to have a ton of primary source material and there was an idea I had that I worked on for a year I loved this idea and I just um, couldn't make it work I could tell you that that idea if you want because I'll <laughs> probably never be able to it's a great idea um, so all right. <laughs> um, so I was, I'm always reading and looking for ideas. And um, I was reading this article about Benjamin Franklin and about the only house still standing where Franklin lived. And it was, it's in London. And he lived there for 18 years. And um, it had fallen in complete disrepair. It was falling apart. Squatters were living there. And this organization, I think it's the Friends of Benjamin Franklin, had bought it. And they were renovating it. And they had some workers working in the basement. And one of the workers found a bone, and then he found another bone, and another bone, another bone. He ended up finding 1,200 human bones in this basement. And so they call the police, and the police come and they look at it, and they're like, you know, you need a forensic anthropologist. And they come and they date these bones to exactly the time when Benjamin Franklin lived in this house. So you're like, founding father serial murderer? What? <laughs> What's going on? Um, so what happened was that he had rented two floors of this house from a widow and her daughter, Polly. And Polly had married this young man named Matthew Hewson, who was a doctor and an anatomist at a time when it was illegal to perform autopsies. So Hewson, they actually had a tunnel leading from this basement to the Thames, where they would bring, they would, you know, hire these resurrection men, right, grave robbers, and they would bring in these bodies. There was also, beyond the garden wall was a gallows where men were regularly, people were regularly being hanged for any of, like, 400 different crimes you could be hanged for. And so they would make a deal with them. They're like, look, you know, you're going to die tomorrow. So if you give me your body, I'll buy you a new set of clothes for your hanging. And, um, and they would get these bodies and... Um, Right before the revolution, because, you know, Franklin was there as a loyalist trying to prevent the revolution from happening. And it's all falling apart, and he realizes he was wrong, and he's being forced out of England. And Hewson, who's become like a son to him, cuts his finger while performing an autopsy, and he dies from septicemia. And Polly, who's expecting their third child at that point, returns with Franklin to Philadelphia. And I tracked down the descendants of Polly and Matthew Houston, still living in Philadelphia, many of them doctors. And I said to them, please, God, tell me you have a diary that Houston kept where he, I can prove. Because I know, I know Franklin was down there with him. And Franklin, there were, no, there were no medical schools in the United States at that time. He was bringing 
young medical students to England to study with Matthew Hewson. He was, he was going on house calls as a doctor. He, he was this incredible scientist, incredibly curious intellectually. I know he was down there, but I can't prove it. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't have dialogue, et cetera, et cetera. So, but it, anyway, still breaks my heart. So. An audience member is curious about Churchill's entrance into politics. Was his first race close? And was his victory due to his status as a war hero? No, it wasn't particularly close, but it was because of, and he himself says that. He writes right after the, his victory, he writes a letter to the, to the prime minister at the time, and he says, I know that my victory is because of my popularity rising out of the recent war in South Africa. So absolutely, it made his name, you know. But this is something, you know, he, he believed, and he was right, although he couldn't have predicted how it turned out, how it came to be. But he believed that war was his vehicle. It was his path to recognition, to fame, and to political power. He called it the glittering gateway to distinction. And that's why he, you know, again, he's 24 years old, and this is his fourth war on three different continents. So he's trying everything, everything to be noticed and taking incredible risks, absolutely willing to risk his own life um, because he believed that this was his destiny. And that's what, you know, because the British were losing the war at that point, they had just had what they called Black Week, where they lost three huge battles, right, one after another, right before Churchill escaped. And so the entire country, and they don't know where he is, the entire country, they know the son of a lord has escaped, but where is he and will he be caught? And they, nobody thinks he'll make it out alive. And when he does, it makes him a huge hero, and it's exactly what the country needed at that time. And it absolutely launched his political career. This question is about what Churchill did after escaping his imprisonment in South Africa. Did he return to fight or work as a correspondent? This is, again, very Churchillian. So he, um, when, so he used to do this unusual thing. So in Cuba and in British India and in Afghanistan, he was both a combatant, combatant and a correspondent, so he was covering the war, but he was so openly and fiercely um, critical of those in command that finally the British Army made a rule and they said, look, you can't do both. You can fight or you can be a correspondent, but you can't do both. And they made this rule because of Winston Churchill. So after he um, escapes and he's his hero and Buller meets with him, and he says, look, we're very grateful to you. Is there anything we can do for you? Is there anything you want? And he says, yes, I want a regiment. I want to go and I want to fight. And Buller knows that he has, that Churchill has a contract with the Morning Post. And he's like, well, you know, you've got this contract. And as you know, we have this rule because of you that you can't do both. And Churchill says, yes, I know. But still, I want to do it. And they let him. So they break the rule that they made because of Churchill. They break it. <laughs> for him, and he goes back, and he's sending his dispatches to the Morning Post, and he's fighting, and that's when he um, goes with the regiment into Pretoria the day it falls, and he releases the prison. Another member of the audience asked Millard what she used as primary source material while researching Hero of the Empire. Yeah, so it just depends. I mean, most places you can go, um, and I'll tell you a quick story about um, when I was 
researching um, my second book, Destiny of the Republic, which is about James Garfield, and Garfield was our second president to be assassinated. And so he wasn't president for very long, but he had been in Congress for 18 years. So he has huge, huge amount of papers in the presidential papers in the Library of Congress. Um, but as you might imagine, nobody had looked at them for 130 years because they didn't think he was interesting. Um, so I was working there one day, and anybody can go and work in the presidential papers. You just, you go, you take your driver's license, you get a reader ID card, and you can go. But as they should, they have a lot of rules. Um, these are national treasures. So they have all these rules, and I'm a rule follower. So I was very careful, and you can have like one um, little trolley with you know, five bins on it, one bin on your desk at a time, and one folder out of that bin at a time. So I'm you know, very careful with everything. And I open this folder, and there's an envelope in the folder, and I don't know what it is. I've been there for a week going through countless papers. And the, the envelope is, the front of it is facing the table. So I open it, and all this hair falls out. There's hair all over the table. And I turn the envelope over, and it says, clipped from President Garfield's head on his deathbed. I'm like, and, you know, trying to desperately get it back in the envelope. I'm like, my career's over. You know, they're going to throw me out of here. But um, at the same time, that was terrifying. was also so moving. I mean, this hair looked like you could have clipped it from his head yesterday, you know. And it's just this tremendous reminder of the responsibility you have when you set about to tell these stories, you know, and that's why I always do all of my own research. One, because I love it, it's so much fun. And two, because you never know what you're gonna find when you get there, because you, you go out thinking, I know there are certain things that I need and that I want to have, but then all these extra things happen, but then there's just this connection, too, because some of these characters, certainly a Winston Churchill, a Theodore Roosevelt, they become so famous, they seem almost mythical. And it's just a reminder that they are human beings just like we are. And it's the same thing that I find when I was talking about earlier about these personal, private moments of struggle. These are experiences we all have, every single one of us. You live long enough, you're gonna be scared, you're gonna be desperate, you're gonna be grieving. And that's our connection to them. That's how we understand them on a human level. So it took me five years to write this book, and um, I, you know, as is true with all of my books, 80% of the time is research and organizing and understanding. So I go out, I spend about a year and a half just doing foundational research, just gathering everything I can, and then, um, and then I try to read it all, absorb it, organize it. I do tons and tons of outlines. I found holes in my research. I do more research. And so I think you just have to live with it, you know, and you have to just understand them as deeply as you can before you even think about writing a, a single word. Our next question is about what inspired Candace Millard to become a writer. I, I grew up in a, a little working class town in Ohio, and, um, and uh, my parents, I mean, we had three sisters, and so we didn't have a lot of anything except books. And those books were from the library. You know, we just went to the library every day. And, um, and so, you know, it didn't even occur to me when I was a little girl that I could be a writer. Um, it, I didn't know anybody who was a writer. It just seemed like, you know, something that other people did. It didn't occur to me, but 
Um, but I knew that I wanted to read and that I wanted to, do, so I thought maybe I'll be a teacher or a librarian, <laughs> just some job where I can, where I can read a lot. And, um, and so I encountered Barbara Tuckman fairly early on and she does what I hope to try to do, which is to bring a story to life because I think that um, there's a fundamental truth um, to history that sometimes you don't get, that is missing sometimes. And you know, a, a lot of people will come up to me and say, you know, I thought I didn't like history. I thought history was boring um, until I read either you know, one of my books or any number of books about history that you know, makes you feel like you were there. And um, I feel that if you don't have that understanding, if you don't feel that emotional connection, then you lose an important truth of history, which is that you know, people in the past didn't live in black and white. They didn't live in dates and events and sort of this sort of long slog through history. They lived like we did with, with you know, triumph and tragedy and, and heroism and, and fear and all those emotions. And if, you, if, 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 a, if a text is devoid of that, um, I think you do lose a fundamental truth. And Barbara Tuckman's are very much alive. An audience member asks if Churchill ever spoke openly about the conditions of the concentration camps present during the Boer War. Yeah, it actually it was discussed widely. Emily Hobhouse, um, a, a British woman, ended up going to South Africa and seeing what was happening and was horrified and came back and started to fight for, for a change and unfortunately it took uh, way too long. But also Winston Churchill, so he later on became um, Home Secretary and he was in charge of the prisons um, in England, certainly in Great Britain. And, um, and he, as I said, he had never forgot what it felt like to be in captivity and so he made sure that prisoners you know, no matter what crime they were guilty of, no matter how guilty they were, that they still had access to books and to fresh air and to exercise. So there was a, a basic compassion and sort of humanity there that was certainly influenced by his experiences in the Boer War. Another audience member wonders if Churchill's rise to power and iconic status was due to him simply being in the right place at the right time. Um, he was, you know, there, I, you know, we have to acknowledge the fact that a lot of it is luck. You know, certainly luck played a big part in, um, in what happened to him in South Africa. And those of you, if you, if you read the book, you'll, you'll see that. Um, but it also was absolutely his, as I talked about earlier, his determination, his grit, his, his um, absolute audacity, you know, he just threw himself into the situation and took chances where other people wouldn't. And I think that absolutely comes into play 40 years later in World War II. And I think that, um, look, there are a lot of, you know, we were just talking about Gandhi, I mean, there are a lot of influential figures. And Churchill was not a perfect person by any stretch of the imagination. He was an elitist, he was an imperialist. Um, but I think that anybody who tries to dismiss his impact, his importance, his, his sort of unique power, um, doesn't understand the power of words. And no one understood words better than Winston Churchill. You know, he, people often talk about the fact that he wasn't a particularly good student, and that was 
largely true. You know, he was always at the bottom form of his classes. And so they didn't think he was smart enough to go to take the Latin and Greek classes. So they put him in kind of the bonehead English classes. But he had a great teacher. And he learned the English language. He learned it inside and out. And he was incredibly beautiful, powerful writer um, in, in the written word and, and the spoken word, as we know. And he harnessed that power um, as a tool and as a weapon. And, um, and we all have him to thank for that. The last question of the night comes from an audience member noting that the future leaders of the world currently live in the digital age full of emails and social media posts. What kinds of challenges might future historians face when writing about our current times? Yeah, it's something that I worry about a lot, actually, you know, because um, it's not just the, the number, the, the quantity of letters and diaries and things that I have access to at this time in history, um, but it's the beauty of them, the thoughtfulness behind them. And you're just not going to get that in a tweet, you know, or, or <laughs> you're just not. And, um, and so, you know, it's absolutely something I worry about for future historians and, and writers of history. Um, and I think it's, um, it's a real loss. And so, I don't know, I hope there'll be a resurgence of, of letter writers and diarists. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. That wraps up our Hennepin County Library Southdale event with Candace Millard. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with Cy Montgomery at 6.30 p.m. Wednesday, November 2nd at Washington County's R.H. Stafford Library. Internationally renowned naturalist, author, documentarian, and media commentator Cy Montgomery is sometimes described as part Indiana Jones, part Emily Dickinson. Her latest New York Times bestseller, The Soul of an Octopus, was shortlisted for a National Book Award. Meet Cy Montgomery, get your questions answered, and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Club Book Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Club Book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who made Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.